So I've come a long way to get here tonight. In fact, I've come from just backstage. Um, but that's a long way when you spend your life walk walking in circles. At least these few steps are in the right direction. What you're about to see is incredibly entertaining, inspiring and educational. But a little disclaimer at the top. A lot of people have trouble understanding my accent. So if you can't understand me, just nod and clap in appreciation because this show is incredibly entertaining and inspiration and educational. But if you don't think the show is incredibly entertaining, inspirational and educational, it's probably because you can't understand me. So storytelling has been used from before the dawn of time, from drawing antelopes on caves to by firelight, by telling stories of bravery around the campfire. It's been used as a form of dispelling fear and creating understanding of the unknown. If we can travel back to the days gone by and imagine a group of cave people. You know, I say cave people for two reasons. One, because we're living in 2017 and gender equality. And two, because your mind can automatically picture at least a perception of these so-called cave people. If I was to say Denisovans, you would most likely not be able to enter the imagination as efficiently. It's sort of like you say tomato, I say tomato. You say potato, but no one says potato. But it's only a story after all. Anyway, the group would be gathered around the campfire and central meeting space. All generations would be together from grandparents to newborns. They would tell tales of their hunts and their loves and their triumphs and their woes. Just like us, they wanted to feel comfortable in their existence. But of course, there were a lot more unknowns to their surroundings. What was that noise? Was it the wind? Was it the beast that made those footprints earlier? Or was it the god that lives in that mountain? Who knows? But when they put words and descriptions to their fears, they would disappear. One element I particularly enjoy in these origin stories of storytelling is the Transformer character. You know, such as Devil's Tower out in Wyoming, with the giant bear scratching at the mountain to create the grooves. It was transformed the surroundings. For me, back home, it's actually the Giant's Causeway where Finn McCool lived. Now, he was a great old giant, and he loved running around getting into all sorts of trouble here and there. Especially one of his favourite things was to go over to Scotland and chat up the ladies. As many of you know here in the audience that one of the greatest strings to a Celticman's bow is his tongue, in more ways than one. So anyway, he'd be off in Scotland showing the lassies what he's famous for. See, he was big work counts, just like me, in his heart. But on this fateful rendezvous he chose the wrong girl, for she had the affections of Tiernanog, who was the largest of the Scottish giants, and he didn't take too kindly to this narish lad swiping away the hearts of his affections. So he chased him away, all the way back to Ireland. But good old Finn McCool, he used his noggin to get the upper hand. He hid in a baby carriage until Tiernanog found him. Ah, sweet Jesus. If that's the size of their babies, imagine the size of their biggins. And he scampered back off across the Irish Sea. Now McCool seized this opportunity and picked up a big rock and threw it at him. But it only made it across, halfway across the sea. And it landed in the middle. And that's how the Isle of Man was created. It's as true as the day is long. You see, McCool is a Transformer character, and this is how I see storytelling, as a form of communication to create transformations. Now, over the years, we have lost this transition, transition to the winds of time. We have lost this community spirit of listening and understanding each other. If we remember a few moments ago with the Denisovant, all sleeping as a unit with the familial generations together. But now we are divided, and at bedtime we send our children off to a dark room on their own, to deal with their own every nightmare that their imaginations can muster. So this is an area that we still hold on to the origins of storytelling though, the bedtime story. You know, so take Good Night Moon for instance, it is comprised of a procedure of drawing awareness to every potential fear within the room. 
from shadows to clothing to little creatures, giving everything its place and naming it in order to understand there is no fear or danger, and therefore a good restful night's sleep. Which brings us back around to why we're sitting here in this darkened basement room. It's quite cosy and intimate, isn't it? Well, it's time to all get tucked in while I tell you some tales in the hopes of dispelling the myths, fears, and stigma around mental health. So it's a great time to be alive, everyone. Before now, I only really had the choice of Comic Sans as a font to craft my suicide notes. But now I can craft the perfect suicide note comprised entirely of emojis. Now let's sit back and watch this little film. So I think you can probably tell by my accent that I'm not originally from here. That's right, I'm from just down the road in Murray. But of course, we're talking about way before then. My accent probably conjures up thoughts and visions of rolling hills, Guinness and leprechauns where everyone does a jig at the end of the night and we all worship a man called Bono. But that is Ireland you're thinking of and I'm not from there. I'm from Northern Ireland where Catholics hate Protestants, Protestants hate Catholics and we all spend our time throwing petrol bombs at each other while dodging bullets. Now, if you aren't aware of the troubles in Northern Ireland, I'm sure you've heard the song Bloody Sunday by U2, which is part of it, but I'll give you a brief history lesson. Oh, and by the way, unlike the song Bloody Sunday, this is true. Well, at least my version of the truth. So way back in the days, Henry VIII had had enough of his wife and decided that perhaps chopping their heads off wasn't the most appropriate way to end his marriages. So he thought to himself, perhaps I'll get a divorce. But oh dear, he forgot about the Pope. And the Pope said, I decree no divorce for ye. Oh, but dear Henry had another idea. He created the Church of England and embraced Protestantism. And in the basis form of Protestantism is the word to protest the Catholic faith. And so he did. And therefore, so did the rest of Great Britain. That is, except for Ireland, which broke away from the mainland, but only in spirit. It's not as if they actually got a chisel and actually broke away the country. But leaving Northern Ireland behind. See, Ireland is a different country than Ireland. And basically, this is what all the troubles are about. So in order to get United Ireland again, much like today, the only way to resort to is terrorism, to blow lots of things and people up. And that, dear friends, is what is known as the Troubles. Which I've never really understood that term, you know. Thousands of people have died. Everyone in the country has had some direct contact with it. And in some way or another, and they've all suffered in a negative way. But in all our Celtic wordsmithery, we chose to call it the Troubles. It's like having a tiff with the wife and saying, oh, it's just a bit of Troubles with her indoors. It makes no sense to me. Now, I was raised in quite a decent class. The town I lived in was called Hollywood, but just with one L. It was where all the monks lived, and it was a forest. So it was the Holy Wood. But then all the Vikings came over, killed all the monks, and thought it was a nice place to stay. See, pillage murder wood didn't really have the same ring to it, so the name stuck. My town is just like your imagination, thatched cottages and all that, but to give you context, Costco is bigger than my high street. So anyway, I had the same upbringing as other children, which as I mentioned was mostly running around dodging bullets and throwing petrol bombs at each other. Now I remember it was pretty cool because my... Uh, my granny had gone to America and she brought me back a Red Sox hat. She sat me down she says, Brian, I got this made specially for you. The B stands for Brian. 
So I would always have that hat on while I was running around uh, doing what I was doing. Um, so yeah, running around uh, dodging bullets. Um, but there was one difference for me. My dad was chief inspector of the police, which put him and me by proxy firmly in the IRA's legitimate target list and began my tiptoeing and tap dancing through various direct and indirect attempts to knock me off this mortal coil. Such as the first gun to my head as a child and the last gun in my head at 26, and many more in between. The roadblocks, the car bombs, the kneecappings, the punishment beatings, and the continuous fear around me and my country. My first job, even, was to pat down the clothes in a shop checking for firebombs at the end of the day. But hey, it was my life, I had no comparison. But it wasn't all bad, as the entire country was wasted on drugs and alcohol to deal with it all. Now, there's a misconception that Celts like to drink once in a while. And you know, I'm here to tell you that that's a God's honest truth, because even my mother's milk had an alcohol content. But my transition into the drug addiction was pretty quick, between solvents, moving to pills, to LSD, to cocaine, and ecstasy, and finishing up and trying to drown it all in blues. But all of this was just making my need to survive. I was a ghost. I'd become totally dissociated as a survival mechanism. You know, I was the ghost. There was another thing, but I was also the king. You know, Elvis was enjoying a resurgence at the time, and I'd become that as I was becoming my downfall. <clears throat> and I was dissociated with life that I couldn't even make eye contact. I would mope around with my head firmly in a downward gaze. There was one benefit, though. I did find a lot of money. I was there, but I wasn't. I wasn't, but I was. Perhaps a little, a little like Schrodinger's cat, but I had put myself in the box. You know, as I mentioned, Elvis had become popular again through the remixes and advertising. But before my perception of him was none too flattering, chubby version eating cheeseburgers and shooting TVs. But then, like a reversed engineered phoenix from the flames, Suspicious Minds was released, and I was in awe of his hips, those sideburns and that chest. He was in his prime, just beginning the Vegas years. The hypnotism was intense, and it beamed through the airwaves and into my loins. Because if you didn't know, that's where passion comes from. It lives in your loins, and you just gotta learn how to direct your passion. But for now, my passion was still directed firmly at the bottom of the bottle, planted on a bar stool and not existing with another soul, until I slowly slid off the stool onto the floor. There was only one thing that would bring me back from the brink when the jukebox would light up and the first few chords would ring out. My loins would start to feel life. Slowly but surely they would give me pulse and they'd be gyrating me to the stage. I'd be in full swing, giving a bit of this, giving a bit of that, giving it a whole lot of oh. You see, there was one thing about the bars back home. Everyone is sort of having fun while boozing it up, but there's always a dread in the atmosphere, just waiting until it kicks off and the bottles go flying and the bud starts running. But that is just the segregated pubs. It's a whole different story in the mixed clubs downtown. The best time to get to the pub is early in the night so you can plant yourself firmly behind a column so you've got a bit of protection in case some guy sprays the place with bullets. So all in all, drinking was a rough sport in those days. But what can I say? It had to be done. Back to the oh oh so As soon as the last twang had twanged, I go back from the king straight back to the ghost in one easy step from the stage back to my stool. It was quite an enigma for those around me, but something coined in my 
life in my head and the penny began to drop I began to realize you know Catholics hate Protestants Protestants hate Catholics but everybody loves Elvis and my hips were wriggling and my lips were curling and the atmosphere changed for minutes and I initially understood conflict resolution you know I got a suit tailor-made and I began to do Elvis for peace and I would travel the country going from bar to bar club to club town to town showing how that my hips could change the world until I came to Utah and I realized that the true rivalry was a place called BYU versus Utah. And I don't know how I'm ever going to fix that. But how did I actually get here? How did I get to America? You know, the Good Friday Agreement was on April 10th, 1998 and signified the beginning of the peace process in Northern Ireland. We all had to go and vote if we wanted peace or not. And after hundreds of years of strife, I and all my masculinity and macho-ness, or young, dumb and full of commas is better known, voted no. Not that I didn't want peace, but I didn't agree with the terms. And I knew that my vote, as most votes these days, wouldn't actually count. So we were all good in the long run. Not so much. But I support the political situation. See, the immigration process was quite easy for me. It was sort of like a big claw came out of the sky across from America, you know, one of those teddy bear claws, and then came down, just plucked me up and put me in Boston. They even gave me a nun to look after me as a sort of chaperone and sort of show me the ropes and the ways of the new the new world. But maybe I'm just thinking of that with rose-coloured glasses because I was very, very, very drunk. <clears throat> And you know, so I did, I had a fancy free lifestyle in Boston. If you can remember uh, what I mentioned earlier on, that my, my Red Sox hat, and I had found my Red Sox hat, and I realized, you know what? Everyone couldn't be called Brian. Then I realized that the truth was, they weren't all called Brian, and that my granny was a liar. And I thought about the other three lies that she told me. One, the tooth fairy. Two, Santa Claus. Three, you can't get pregnant if you have sex standing up. But I suppose that's how you do it, you just lie to children to raise them right. But as I say, I had a fancy free lifestyle frolicking around Boston doing everything that I had. I could go here, I could go there, I could talk to anybody I wanted, but um, but that only lasted for about six months. So one of my lesser mental health issues is dyslexia. It's really not one of the most horrid ones, but it's something that affects me every day. Just like under the surface speech impediment that lays in wait for you to just to strike out at the most opportune moments to tumble down what has been built. Makes me think about the word speech impediment. That whoever came up with that term speech impediment is a bit of a bastard. You know, as it's pretty hard to say, speech impediment. <clears throat> but my dyslexia makes it difficult to read, write and mostly spell. I jumble up letters till the cows come home, which is why I choose to communicate visually. But there are four letters that I will never make a mistake because this next story is brought to you by the letters P, T, S, D. You know, I can pinpoint the exact moment that things started to go a bit skew with for me. The mind can be a wonderful thing, but it can also be a torturous thing. It first popped up in the form of hypervigilance, and this can be described in an understandable way as a sort of spidey sense. I'm sure you've all seen Spider-Man. It's a pretty decent film that uh, was out there. But, you know, and it really just it, it sort of allows you to understand if there's a danger or dinner. I'm always happier for dinner, though, than danger. But yeah, so I'd run around and... and uh, uh, 
But I can remember the very first time that it hit me. The night was quite chilly back in Boston. There were brief moments of sobriety here and there. I remember being quite elated if I could manage to actually get to sleep sober. I would get into bed and I would do a little jig under my covers. But that would be closely followed by a little sleep jig to the freezer to down a bottle of vodka and then wander out into the snow in my boxer shorts. Luckily I had nocturnal student roommates who would find me and bring me back inside just before I embodied Jack Nicholson from The Shining. But you know, just like Jack, I was in the beginning stages of my hauntings. You know, as I mentioned before, I had been living this life of Riley and my newfound freedom. But unfortunately, the hypervigilance was feeling a tad locked up, and I was desperate for something to feed upon. It delved into my random access memories, deep into the recesses where most of those old 80s song lyrics live. But I pushed them all aside and retrieved some choice moments to bring back to the surface in the ghostly apparition form of flashbacks. I say Scrooge McDuck himself had this, had the sleep of a baby compared to these visitations. Poptastic folks, welcome to this week's chart top down at the hit parade of top PTSD flashbacks and night terrors. In at number three, everyone is watching you, every move you make. But it's not Sting, it's the IRA. They're at your window and they've planted a bomb under your bed. No sleep till morning. In at number two, what's that? Is it a dog? Is it a large cat? Maybe a car? No, it's a man crawling down the street. Oh, silly me, he's just been tarred and feathered and he's reaching out to you for help. But you can't help him or be an accessory. Best to just walk on by. And at number top of the charts for years, straight literally murder on the dance floor, straight in with a bullet, it's dragged out of a car with a gun to your head. So realistic in its depiction that you can truly feel the muzzle pressed on your skull for days on end. So of course, when these delightful displays of destruction began, I tried to brush them under the rug, not to see the light of day. But as we all know, playing peekaboo as a baby, that closing your eyes doesn't really make things go away. So let's try it now, shall we? Peekaboo, peekaboo, peekaboo. Shite. You're all still here. I was hoping that you'd go away because my social anxiety was raising a little and I was sort of thinking I could maybe go home. But anyway, let's keep on trucking. But living this way, I had removed myself from society subconsciously. I would allowed my mind to take control of my being and hide me away from the rest of the world. I don't really know how to explain it, but it was a survival mechanism. Now, of course, I began going to therapy and support groups, but unfortunately none of those avenues had an exit for me. I tried talk therapy, I tried group therapy, I tried pharmaceuticals, and I even went to a guy that made me jump on a trampoline while poking me in the forehead while jumping up, while wearing a jockstrap. I have really no idea what he was trying to accomplish, but perhaps it was a form of getting my blood up to invoke a primal scream. But mostly they would just sit there with their mouths agape and saying, Wow, I've never treated somebody with such issues. I wouldn't even know where to start. That'll be $200, please. So over the years, I regressed into a world of dissociation fueled by, fueled by alcohol and drugs. It felt like I was playing a computer game and I was the main character. I felt so disconnected from what and had like having an out-of-body experience all day, every day. I could control myself, turn left, turn right, go forward, etc. But I couldn't feel anything. This was a perfect way for me not to care of the violence and damage that could be done towards me. You know, it was amazing to me looking back that I had become so dissociated that I came to believe that I was in fact inside a simulation of life, my own design. Sort of like the holodeck on Star Trek. 
there was a certain circumference around me that would be projected within the lines of sight. And anything beyond that would be, not exist until I moved my centre forward. This was actually a blessing in disguise, as I could actually function without fear. So let me explain. You see, if I had created the program and all the characters and objects inside the system, then it would make no sense that I would create any of the aforementioned things with the ability to hurt me. So therefore, when scenarios of violence and danger arose, I could perform a series of maneuvers in order to survive without the actual emotional danger raising its head. A sort of Street Fighter super move, left, right, left, right, up, down, X, Y, Z. Presto. Bottle. Pass, bo boss bottle complete. But just imagine how perfectly sane that sounds to a nurse at the ER. Yeah, perfect sense. You know, this got me locked up in my first psych ward in New England. This came complete with a nurse ratchet and many other antiquated delights. But imagine my dismay when there was no water fountain. So how could I even try to lift it to make my escape? Well, anyway, my little vacations to those holiday homes is an entirely other show, which may come back next time, but let's stay on trying. So I lived in my little holodeck for seven years or so, and it was bliss, totally oblivious to the pains and passions of the world around me, until one fateful day I was driving home from work on my scooter past Fenway Park in Boston. I stopped in traffic beside a Hummer, and I thought to myself, yeah, that's a pretty over-engineered vehicle for an urban setting. I looked around and I saw the other cars and how different they all were. The people, the bikes, the shops and the birds. I thought to myself, why am I wasting my time with so internal functions to create and project so many different types of objects? It would make much more sense that all the cars would just be rectangle and circles and all people would be stick people. You know, I was living at such a base level that I thought everything around me should be represented at a base level too. But that was certainly not the case. And almost immediately, everything came flooding back to my life, and my holodeck was shattered. It was like Bad Boys 2 when the camera spins around Will Smith and that other bad boy. And he says, shit, just got real. I was alive. But okay, I may have been thrust into feelings now, and it all comes with this newfound level of life. But I certainly didn't like it. Oh no, not one bit. Now I was faced with the challenge of getting rid of all these pesky feelings again. And the only way I knew how to do it was to drown them in increasingly cheaper forms of booze and containers. I even resorted to drinking aftershave. Not because it was cheaper though, but because it was available. See, I remember my dad giving my first bottle of Old Spice and saying to me, You're a man now, son. Just don't drink it. Oh, but I certainly did. I don't remember getting too much drunk, but my breath was ever so sweet. But I got deeper and deeper into my addiction and truly became a monster. Contrary to popular belief, monsters do exist. I'm not talking about hairy pointed teeth beasts from myths and legends, although they are derived from truth along the way. I'm talking about the monsters that we create within ourselves, like the werewolf that comes out in fits of rage and ends with ragged clothes and broken crockery. Although my monster was created due to ingesting potions and substances, more like Jekyll and Hyde. I would feel so torn up inside that I would contort and snarl at myself in the mirror. I would try to recreate physical form of monster to match my emotional beast within. You know, every night after night I would set up my video camera to record my descent into madness with the hope of watching the tapes and the next day and scaring myself into sobriety. But I was always too afraid to watch them. You know, I have hundreds of these tapes and to this day I still haven't watched them. Until tonight. Not a chance. Sorry, still not quite there yet to meet myself again. 
But I was no longer the ghost. I was nothing but a shadow. So crackers, nuts and bananas are all clever ways to describe losing your mind. But little did I know. My life had become so unmanageable to for sure. Although I did love it, I did have love in my life, and it would seem I just couldn't grasp onto it. I had a wife and we were having a baby. My ex-wife, as she is now more commonly known, had wanted a natural birth and had chosen hypno babies as a way to do it. Basically I would I would hypnotize her to lull away the pain. So I remember the day we went to the hospital. I did what all good husbands are supposed to do by getting her into the car and prepared with the hospital bag. But unfortunately, I had forgotten about preparing my own hospital bag full of my liquid needs. I left her in the car as I went back to fill the bottle of Coke with whiskey and smuggled it into the car. See, I was kind of hoping for a quick birth, but unfortunately after 16 hour labor and plenty of look into my eyes, you were feeling sleepy. And all I, all I could think of was going out to the car, downing the whiskey and getting back inside to the medical staff without them realizing I was drunk. But I kept on going until Charlie, my son, decided he was going to hang himself with the umbilical cord. So it was time for a cesarean. And also time for the doctors to say no more hypno babies. It was quite amazing really. They put up a sheet up and they made a baby appear. And it was Charlie. I held him in my arms and he looked in my eyes. And the nurses took him to get cleaned up and I went home to drink. I stayed at home and drank for a week until my ex-wife and Charlie came home too. But I don't think it was a home anymore with me there. So my flashbacks were now increasing to nightly with no end in sight. I couldn't sleep, let alone be awake. The perceived guns to my forehead were so realistic I could feel the muzzle pressed on my skull day in, day out. I drank more and more just to keep to get just to try to sleep. But surprisingly that didn't work to make the terrors go away. It just made me too drunk to wake up as I slept walked around the house. And this was for sure not a good environment for a new family. So with hindsight, thankfully the locks were changed and I was given my marching orders with three cans of soup but no can opener. So five years ago I walked out of my old life and into my new. Oh, and with a year of homelessness in between. I spent my days wandering the streets and nights at the shelter. I had surrendered to my troubles. My plan now was to drink myself to death. I was so haunted by my ghosts that I was happier to be oblivious in the bottle than be terrified of my past. My troubles were crushing me and giving me and giving up was the only solution I could see. I was consumed by anger and hate directed at everyone but myself. Desperate for help but unwilling to ask. So but unwilling to ask, so distant from normality that nobody would consider offering. I was exuding emotional bile from every pore that I was now truly alone at the centre of my universe with no one to blame but myself. But on a wandering day, as I sat on a bench with the perimeter firmly set, a family was having a picnic. There were two little boys. They had bananas and they were playing army. As the curiosity and naivety of children, they could not feel or see my boundaries and bounced on over to me. They squarely aimed their yellow firearms at me and popped off a single shot. Now, you may be thinking or hoping that this triggered me, and maybe it did, but certainly not in a negative way. Maybe on another day we'd have had a totally different outcome, but that was not the case. For whatever reason, in that moment the idea popped into my head that if those two kids are truly believing that those bananas are guns, which they are in a child's imagination, there is no reason that I can't believe the opposite is true.
the guns are bananas. Yeah, I know it's pretty ridiculous, but I started drawing. I had an old envelope from a payslip, and I had some crayons. Now, my artistic skills aren't the best, but I managed to draw some stickmen. Luckily, I had a yellow crayon, so I could actually differentiate the banana. I drew, and I painted, and I sculpted, and I animated. All of my adverse memories of the troubles, but with one new element. I replaced all the guns with bananas. It took about six months, but concentrating on this, I was able to change my flashbacks and remove the fear from my subconscious. Sabotage. Now, I certainly didn't change my memories, as I'm fully aware of the gravity of the situation, but my dreams are a different matter. Now I could remove myself and I could see the fear for what it was. Two things became apparent. One, it is ridiculous that he is trying to kill me with a banana. He might as well put the skin on the ground and hope that I slip on it. And two, it is ridiculous that he is trying to kill me because of the perception of what I represent. So it took about six months to turn my mind inside out and clear away the cobwebs, but it was amazing. As my issues were so massive to me, so I assumed that my solution needed to be just as big. But in the end, my answer was as simple as a banana. But it wasn't a magic fix. I still had to put one foot in front of the other to get here tonight. Much like PTSD, this next section is brought to you by the letters AA. So I was back on track and sober, but really with no, different, no direction home. So I went to AA. Now this wasn't the first time that I tiptoed into the rooms. I remember back in the day when I was 19 that I went to my first meeting. It was a little corner shop back in Belfast. I got all dressed up in a three-piece suit, thinking there'd be lots of girls there. And as I climbed the rickety stairs, I was filled with anticipation as I threw open the door, expecting them all to give me a standing ovation, that they'd been waiting for me and finally I was there. But unfortunately, nobody batted an eyelid. And there weren't any girls there, just a bunch of old men talking about how excited they were that one of them had bought a new stove and they were going to go home and cook some steak straight after the meeting. So certainly, this did not resonate with me. Anyway, fast forward 15 years and I limped on into the sizzler back on 400 south with my head hung low and my tail firmly between my legs. But something was different now. I wanted it. I even stood up and said those magic words. I'm Brian and I'm an alcoholic. I had run so far away from Brian, I didn't even know who he was. But at this time, I was getting to know him, and I didn't want to be scared. For those of you paying attention at the start, how many steps did I take across the stage? Anybody? No, it wasn't 12. It was three. And surprisingly, step three in the 12 steps is the hardest. I could do all the rest fine and dandy, but the higher power, but the concept of God did not sit well with me. Because if you remember where I'm from, religion has a lot to answer for. I know, I know, there's lots of different ways to describe God. Just got something even bigger than yourself. Some people even use G-O-D as group of drunks. But for me, I had to find something I truly believed in. Now, I knew that I wouldn't be sober for long if I didn't embrace the program at this time. So I tried hard, hard, hard to find something upon high that I could put my faith in. And certainly it wasn't going to be the beardy boy in the sky, in the cloud. Now, the only time that I've ever prayed before in my life was for my chest. You see, all the bad lads back home and had all had hairy chests, including my dad, and they were all pretty violent and not the nicest of chaps. And the only men I knew who were good were like Arnie, Stallone, etc. And they all had smooth, glistening chests. And they were out saving the world. So my little boy brain put this prayer together. Dear Lord, please do not make me evil by giving me a hairy chest. 
And of course, as you can see, I have my prayers did not get answered. But perhaps God maybe did. He maybe looked upon me and he said, Brian, you've got a, had a bit of a rough life, so I'm going to bless you with the best, greatest hairy chest known to man. And you're not going to understand the benefits until later in life. Your little mind just can't comprehend. But anyway, I thought, what do I believe in? Well, I believe in science. And what does science have to say about creation? Well, the Big Bang Theory. Whether it's a theory or not, I'm pretty sure that happened. So, billions of years ago, there was a boom. If this was a Trump story, it would be billions and billions and billions and billions of years ago. But back to the boom. So, as we know, when something explodes in a vacuum and expands out in a spherical form, just like the Big Bang did in a spherical form, it created all these little spheres, and all these little spheres travel around each other in circles as they spin around in a circle too. Then, day and night, it basically becomes a circle. And uh, the days are circles, morning, afternoon, evening, morning, afternoon, evening, so on and so forth. Even we as a people are formed around the cyclical motion. We're born, we live, we die. We're born, we live, we die. <coughs> and how we see and experience the world through our eyes, which is another circle. And the coloration of our eyes is pretty much identical to the pictures of galaxies through the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, although I do bear a quite a striking resemblance to Neil deGrasse Tyson, I do not share his academic skills. So at this stage, my theoretical quantum physics foray ground to a halt. But then I remember driving home on my scooter that day in Boston and thinking about how expansive all the different car designs were and that if I had truly been in control of my holodeck, that everything would be in simplified forms. And then it hit me. The universe is just a bunch of circles. And when I can see it like that, I can understand and I can be the master of my life. Better yet, the Big Bang is still expanding and creating. And if I can be creative in every moment of every day, then I can add creativity rather than destruction of life. Now, as I stand here in front of you, I still live to the beat of the drum to drown out the noise that I'm experiencing in life. Even now, I place everything into a beat the sound of applause from this lovely audience, or the sound of my footsteps as I cross the stage. I hear the rhythm of my heart beat to keep me on track. But now I get more out of a deep breath and a drink of water than I ever got from any drug. And at least when I listen to my heartbeat and meditate, I live to the sound of silence. <laughs>